and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard, I'm Director of ECFR, and this week we are returning to the topic of the Iran nuclear deal and what Europe is going to do about it. It's now been over two weeks since Donald Trump decided to step away from the nuclear deal and we have a clearer sense of how the main players are reacting to it. We've seen uh, initial reactions in Tehran. We've seen the US double down on its stance with threatening voices coming from the new national security advisor, John Bolton. The Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, saying that Europeans were going to fall into line behind uh, American decisions. And we've also seen Europeans starting to grapple with the issue when heads of state and government met in Sofia. They decided to start implementing so-called blocking regulation, which was designed to allow European companies to listen to international law rather than being struck by American secondary sanctions. We decided to do something slightly different from usual this week, and rather than having an ordinary podcast... We are playing you some highlights from a discussion that we just held on the topic in Berlin, which I think in many ways is one of the most interesting uh, bellwethers for this discussion. Of all the E3 countries, Berlin is maybe the most conflicted about the current situation because on the one hand, its attachment to the international rule of law and to uh, the UN is very much part of the DNA of the political system. But on the other hand, it is a country whose return to the civilised world has been totally bound up with its joining of the West and the transatlantic relationship. And I think that you can hear that tension in the remarks of our speakers. And we have an all-star cast who help us try and make sense of this. First up is Wolfgang Ischinger, who's a former... German ambassador to the United States. In fact, he was ambassador at the time of the Iraq war, so he's no stranger to major transatlantic tensions on Middle Eastern issues. And he's now chairman of the Munich Security Conference. The second speaker is Norbert Röttgen, who is chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee in the European Parliament and a former cabinet minister from Angela Merkel's party. He was the uh, energy and environment minister and is one of the, the leading voices on foreign policy in the governing CDU party. And finally, returning to the podcast is Ellie Geremeyer, who has helped listeners on this podcast actually understand what's going on in Iran and what the regional implications of the deal are for, for many months now. Ellie is a senior policy fellow at ECFL. So without further ado, um, I'm going to let you listen to Wolfgang Ischinger, the former German ambassador to Washington. Yeah, thank you very much, Mark. Um, I'll, I'll try to, uh, to do what I wanted to do in the uh, five minutes I've been given. Uh, I want to make four points. First, uh, as, a, as a practitioner of diplomacy, uh, I'm surely not the only one who has tried to give thought to the question, what should we do, what should we have done, what could we have done? as it became apparent that uh, President Trump uh, will walk away in, in, in some shape or form from the JCPOA. And I continue to believe that it would have been an idea worth attempting, uh, which unfortunately was not 
at least not to my knowledge, really attempted, namely to call or to invite all the signatories of the uh, JCPOA um, to a, let me call it the crisis summit, which could have been, uh, which could have taken place in Brussels or somewhere else. Um, and then it would have been <coughs> up to the Trump administration to decide whether they uh, would stay away from this or send someone uh, at whatever level they uh, would have thought possible. I find it regrettable that that has not happened because what we are now seeing, and I'll come back to that, is of course that uh, not only in terms of substance, but, but even in terms of protocol and procedure, we're now having here the Europeans, and they're the Americans, and this is terrible. This is the worst that I've seen in a long time. Second point, just to remind those of you who may not be, you know, the world's greatest expert on the JCPOA, I just want to remind uh, some of you that it is not really true that uh, whatever has been agreed there is only uh, valid for a decade. That was what many of us were reading in, in all sorts of articles in newspapers. It is actually true that the number of centrifuges, the, the reduction of centrifuges, that runs out in 2026. But, um, for example, the uh, uh, obligation to enrich not beyond 3.67%, which is weapons-grade uranium, that obligation runs until 2031. Uh, along with a number of other obligations, such as not to produce any plutonium, etc., etc. Other obligations run until 2036. Uh, uh, still another s section of the JCPOA, namely uh, producing uranium ore, runs until 2041. And the obligation, and the obligation to uh, stay within the additional protocol uh, of the NPT uh, is of course a permanent one. So just to re remind, our, uh, remind us all uh, of this. Now, third point, um, in international diplomacy, the doable uh, is not always the desirable. Uh, I don't know, and I've had the pleasure or the privilege uh, of negotiating a number of uh, agreements and treaties that Germany became uh, a party to, I don't know a single one of these agreements or treaties which was perfect. They're all deficient. Uh, you know, for example, the START, the new START treaty, the United States negotiated with the Russian Federation, of course, doesn't cover INF stuff. So, it's not perfect from a European point of view. It would, would have been desirable to cover all nuclear weapons, uh, uh, etc. So uh, you could you can go through whatever category of agreement you want to. Uh, agreements reflect what was doable, achievable at that particular moment, and the desirable is usually a lot uh, more. In that in in that sense, um, I think we have a problem. Uh, we have a real problem. And the real problem is the following. If the EU does what our uh, foreign ministers uh, declared last night, 
uh, in Brussels, namely to try to salvage the accord and, and continue to, to make it happen, we will run into a very, very serious reputational risk issue. Because I bet you there will be folks on the other side of the, of the Atlantic, there will be folks in Israel, there will be folks here in Germany who will argue what you're now doing is that you are indirectly financing the bad behavior of the Iranians. And I don't really know how we could get out of that. Unless manage to create a new additional agreement with Iran, which would cover ballistic missiles, uh, behavior in Syria, Hezbollah, etc., uh, etc. Cetera, et cetera. Um, last point is just express, for the purposes of this discussion, strategic worry from a particular specific point. And this is about Israel. Israel is the only country I know of uh, beyond the NATO alliance to whom we have promised uh, Chancellor Merkel personally that the security of that country would be of, uh, let me call it, of essential importance to uh, the Federal Republic of Germany. What is now currently increases the risk of war, which could, doesn't have to, but could include war with or against Israel. Uh, you know, pacifist Germany, pacifist Germany might be called upon uh, to go to war. And that is why it's so important for, from a German point of view to have a peaceful uh, settlement, not only of the <coughs> nuclear question of Iran, but of uh, all the accompanying uh, strategic issues. This is this is why this question that we're discussing here today has a particular German angle to it. I can point that out. Thank you. So that was Wolfgang Ischinger. The next speaker that we had is Norbert Röttgen, the chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee in the German Parliament. I would perhaps divide my remarks uh, into three aspects. I would like to make brief remarks. And, and uh, surprisingly and amazingly, perhaps two nuances to what Wolfgang Ischinger said, so we perhaps do not share 100% uh, the opinions. What, what is the impact of the American presidential decision on transatlantic relations? What is the impact on the region? And what should and can Europeans do? I can be brief because uh, we agree on what the impact is on the in the with regard to the transatlantic relationship. I just want to name the topics. It's against the vital interests of Europeans, a decision taken against vital interests of the Europeans, because uh, this region is in the neighborhood of Europe because the refugees and the flames from the conflicts and wars in this region uh, are coming to Europe and not to the United States. So we have learned uh, at, at last uh, and at least from the uh, refugee crisis we had that we can't sever our fate from the fate of the Middle East. So we are highly, mostly and vitally affected uh, of this decision. This decision has been taken 
not only against the interests of Europeans, but it has been taken effectively and actually without effective consultations of the Europeans. We were not relevant in the opinion-building process of the American president because also this decision is all about domestic politics, it's all about the calculation with regards uh, in terms of votes and of money. It has severe fundamental foreign policy consequences but it's all about domestic politics and we do not play any role. Neither President Macron nor the Chancellor does play, do play any role in, in this decision-making American process. This is fundamentally new, both of these decisions against us and completely without us uh, in, in a foreign policy context. And the third aspect, what does it do? It is, of course, a self-damaging um, uh, no, the third point is which Javier Zolana has pointed out. It, it's really absurd that the United States violate a concluded agreement and are determined to enforce the violation of an agreement with economic sanctions. So this is really from the standpoint of rules-based and rules system, a, 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 a high level of, of absurdity which has been uh, uh, conducted and perpetrated by the American president. And of course, in the long run, uh, this will turn out and prove to be self-damaging uh, in a very serious way. So this decision has brought the transatlantic relations uh, in a severe crisis. We will and should remain transatlantic because the roots are deep. Um, uh, we have a breadth and depth of relations, uh, and we should not confuse the country uh, with the president. And uh, the United States remain uh, irreplaceable for the security of Germany and, the, uh, and, and Europe. So there is no surrogate and substitute for the role of the United States, particularly with regard to European and German security. The second aspect, what is the impact on the region? Equally disastrous, I would say. The general approach to try to isolate Iran, rally the Arab-Sunni world against Iran, is flawed it is not able to achieve stability or peace in the region. Secondly, this decision will, or I, I can't, I will put in that word, those words, I can't imagine that after the decision, the Iranians can be ready to negotiate the other topics which are on the table. The aggressive regional behavior, the missile program, and all the topics. Because Sarif already has said, we have learned the lesson that we can't rely on agreements concluded with the Americans. So how could we expect the Iranians be ready to negotiate the critical, vital issues? And thirdly, 
there is a concrete danger that an escalation spiral will be activated. Uh, it be that eventually, after uh, 60 days, also Iran will leave uh, the agreement. Then this could lead to the re-imposition of the UN sanctions regime against Iran. Perhaps Iran is under suspicion to restart its nuclear enrichment program, and this could lead to the opportunity to preemptively destroy nuclear facilities and infrastructure of Iran. So, and this is a little nuance. We could it do legally, but it but only a legal continuation is without political substance. Can we uphold the JCPOA economically? <coughs> My quite certain assumption is no, because the decision of the United States has destroyed any kind of trust on the side of investors. So, despite of any legal and protective forces the state might have or not, I think we do not have great powers of protection of uh, private investments. There will be no, and there is no readiness, no willingness to invest in such an uncertain text. So, investments will break down, and by this, it will be proven that the United States have made use economic power to destroy this agreement, and we can't salvage it. So, are we submitted automatically to escalate? I think there is one opportunity. I do not know whether it is feasible, but it is the opportunity Wolfgang Ischinger has already proposed earlier. I think the perhaps only way to keep the Iranians within the agreement, try to entangle Iran in an international dialogue as long as they took par take part in a negotiation process. Leaving the JCPOA uh, further deteriorate the situation for Iran. So that, in a way, they have an interest. Of course, it's not easily to be done in a face-saving way, but being faced with a European <coughs> invitation uh, and offer to participate in an international conference on stability, peace, cooperation, neighborhood, whatever, in the Middle East, could perhaps create a, the, a format uh, which could, uh, could create the, the pretext or the, the, the decision in Iran. I think this uh, done by the European, by the E3 plus the EU, which could make a difference at this moment. So that was Norbert Röttgen, and the final speaker is ECFR's very own Ellie Geremeyer. Good afternoon, everyone. This was a, a clear decision by President Trump. It was his choice uh, against actually advice of several of his closest advisors, including General Mattis. Um, not to cause this transatlantic rift. And I think that, in a way, uh, the, 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 we as Europeans have been thrust into a position we never wanted to be in. 
and now have to find a way to respond. And I think that while uh, President Trump's decision uh, was primarily, in my opinion, also domestically based, um, I would say that uh, the inclinations of uh, his advisors, like Mr. Bolton, are quite different. Um, I, in my opinion, um, you know, having followed Mr. Bolton's writings and opinions on Iran before he became um, uh, had, had his cabinet position, it's very clear that his strategy is regarding the total uh, um, the total collapse of Iran's economy. Economic implosion is number one, and secondly, I think it's cut off any routes for engagement, whether that's politically or economically, uh, particularly with Europe um, going forward. And I think the, the method, the instrument um, for, for both Mr. Trump to cause the world to collapse and Mr. Bolton to achieve his uh, strategic goal uh, is through essentially the weaponization of US secondary sanctions. I'm challenging a situation as um, High Representative Mogherini outlined last night. I think that the Europeans are under no illusion about the challenges that face them and neither is the Iranian political leadership. Uh, they understand that the critical component of this deal was essentially reaching a modus vivendi with the United States. And now they have a president where this seems to be, um, in my opinion, a very, very unlikely close to zero to actually happen, despite President Trump's uh, call at the end of his statement that he was willing to strike a deal with Iran. Um, and I think here, in terms of what Europe can do, I think we should overestimate. There's a lot of people in Europe also underestimating what we're able to do. To prevent further damage to the transatlantic relationship, we need to try and create some carve-outs, exemptions to how these sanctions are going to be enforced, particularly related to strategic areas of trade uh, and investment that in Tehran are seen as parameters of success for this deal. And there are some big deals that were in place and are currently um, halted, uh, as I understand it. And another parameter of success for Iran, and in, in terms of being able to keep them on board, is to, have to, have to what extent its oil exports can continue. And this is going to be very critical, uh, particularly given the, the, the sanctions that are going to be snapped back on the 4th of November relating to Iran's banking sector and energy sector. So we've been here before. The US has had sanctions on, on Iran for 40 years. The European companies have been there for 40 years. They have an ability to negotiate with both the US Treasury OFAC and the US administration to look at whether these carve-outs and exemptions are possible uh, in certain areas of, as I mentioned, strategic uh, trade with Iran. I think that the Europeans need to add some teeth to these negotiations um, through, through at least threatening, even though in practice putting out, um, some measures uh, legally uh, to create some sp scope uh, for European companies, at least the smaller and more medium-sized, to continue legitimate legal trade with Iran without fear of U.S. penalties. And I think that some of, some areas have already uh, discussed by the E3, and I understand that are going to be discussed today uh, in the summit. Um, the first and foremost that has uh, you know become much more public in the last week has been the concept of reviving the EU uh, the EU blocking regulation. There, there is also a commission meeting today, which will be important on this on this issue. And so the, the EU blocking regulation um, is a very complicated issue. It was uh, first brought to, to life in, in the 1990s when Europe faced a very similar political challenge with the United States over extraterritorial sanctions. We know that they operate very differently in today's world. 
Um, I won't go into details, but I will encourage you to read an article we just published in Foreign Policy today that explains the legal and practical implications of having these European blocking regulations revived and amended. And I think the number one leverage it can give us is some political uh, ammunition in the negotiations that will be forced with the US in terms of how it goes about enforcing its sanctions. A second area that actually been uh, aired by uh, the French uh, finance minister, and it's one that, again, we have legally put in place before, is this idea of a compensation fund for European companies that have to pay what are deemed illegal fines in uh, US jurisdiction. Again, this is uh, not easy. It has challenges, but we have actually done it. Now, again, there are complications with this because um, the, the types of fines that are, that are levied by the U.S. Treasury uh, go into the billions. Yeah. And so the question is, is who, who is going to finance this? Um, I think this goes back to a core issue um, that, uh, that others have pointed out here, is if we don't at least try to provide some mechanisms, what type of precedent are we setting for successive U.S. administrations and Congress members to come not just on Iran, but other countries, other target nations to come. Another area, again, which is uh, separate uh, to what countermeasures can be uh, enacted in terms of negotiations with the US, this is a separate area, and this is to do with how do you create financing structures that allows for companies in Europe that have the legal ability to do business with Iran to actually do business with Iran. For some of these, again, as I say, smaller, more medium-sized companies that are trading and investing with Iran, in addition to setting up more creative special purpose vehicle to actually carry out the transactions into and out of Iran. And some of the areas that have been looked at is, for example, can the central banks of some European countries be connected to the central banks of Iran? So, and again, as some of you may have heard, the U.S. is making this even more complicated by uh, signaling yesterday uh, after designating the governor of Iran's central bank as a terrorist. Um, so I think they know what we're up to, and they're going to challenge us every way. Uh, but I think there are ways to, to try and find with, uh, with both legal and practical mechanisms a way to charter a course for at least a certain degree of economic transa transaction to continue to allow Iran's leaders to actually sell this, not only to the wider leadership, but I would stress to the Iranian people as well, because the nuclear deal has been uh, waning down in public support inside Iran. Um, and so I think that is going to be a critical issue to, to um, consider. There is an E4 dialogue with Iran happening that hasn't yielded fruit, but I think is the start of this discussion, of the security discussion with Iran. And I think that one of the areas that we should, as Europe, be stressing to Iran is that if the situation escalates inside the Middle East, it becomes even more difficult and possibly impossible for Europeans to save the nuclear deal. Um, and I think that right now, there needs to be courage from Germany and France and other countries in Europe to build a coalition that I think takes these measures to safeguard the deal. So from Europe's side, we need some action. And I think from the Iranian side, we actually need inaction. We need restraint to be exercised. I mean, so many uh, interesting questions came up. Uh, on, on this uh, important issue, how, what could be done to conduct uh, meaningful uh, additional negotiations. 
Well, let's be clear, there is now already, and it began yesterday, according to my understanding, there is now a negotiation uh, ongoing between Europeans and the Iranians about how to salvage or to maintain the deal minus the U.S. That's going to be very difficult uh, to bring to a successful conclusion. It's practically impossible for me to imagine that we would at the same time with all with these fundamental questions not resolved, that we would start uh, a reasonably successful additional negotiation with Tehran about their ballistic missile program, about Syria, and about Hezbollah, and about all the other things that we don't like about <coughs> Iranian behavior. So I, I, I think from a kind of realistic <coughs> diplomatic point of view, uh, there, there may be space for one uh, negotiating process, how to salvage the, G G the JCPOA, but I don't really see a realistic opportunity to add on uh, so far as that has not been resolved. And, and, and uh, final point, standing up to the United States. Well, that's, you know, nice to say, but not so easy to do. And I would, in this particular case, I would really advocate uh, what, uh, what we just agreed, Ellie and I, stay cool. I mean, let's, uh, let's, not, uh, let's not go overboard. There are very, very important interests which, uh, which, um, um, uh, the, which bind Europeans and Americans together even if we seem to have uh, uh, a, a particularly difficult issue of controversy here uh, at hand. It's also important to remember that this is not the first time that there were serious uh, difficulties in the trans transatlantic relationship. And uh, I would predict that it will, the transatlantic relationship will survive this particular challenge. But I think our long-term strategic interest is, with regard to the United States, engage, engage, engage. If we want to engage with Mr. Bolton and, and President Trump, then let's talk to the senators. And if the senators aren't willing to listen, there are also 50 or more governors around. And, uh, and, and there is a huge business community. And there is, there is a, a vibrant civil society. The United States, in other words, is more than the White House. And uh, there, are, there are enormous opportunities to engage, 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 and try to survive what seems to be a difficult period. Thanks. Thank you very much, Rolf Hang. Norbert. My, my answer to the transatlantic future question is, uh, if, if the Europeans remain as weak, as divided as we are, uh, I, I could really see over a period of another perhaps uh, possible seven years of Trump presidency, this relationship erode. It will have a serious fundamental impact over time. So what can we do? I think we have to get <coughs> stronger by getting more European. We have to seize the moment for getting more European. Otherwise, uh, we will also suffer the results of our weakness in this relationship, in this unbalanced relationship. And the, the Russia-China and United uh, question, 
I think with regard or regarding the global reputation competition between these powers, China and the United States, I would say there is a zero-sum game. And the damage, the reputational damage of the United States makes China and even Russia a winner in the reputation uh, race. We hope that you've enjoyed listening to this discussion. I think it's one of the most interesting discussions I've heard on the topic. And obviously, as you heard from all the, the statements, this is a debate which is set to run for uh, several months uh, yet, and we'll definitely be returning to the topics in the podcast in the future. If you have any comments on what people said, please write to me at mark.leonard at ecfr.eu and you can share any other ideas that you have uh, for future topics for this podcast. We will put links up to Ellie Jeremiah's piece, which a lot of the speakers mentioned, at our website, which is www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts. Please do uh, share information about this with friends on social media and give us a rating or review on iTunes or SoundCloud or whatever platform you're using to listen to us on at the moment. But for now, from Ellie Jeremiah, from Norbert Hutgen, Wolfgang Ischinger and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. <laughs>